We thank you, Father, that before we were born, you planned every single day of our lives, including this day. And you've planned tomorrow for us as you have planned out our entire life. That's really a staggering thought. But it's a great thought, and it gives us great hope, and it gives us great confidence. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We are grateful to know you. We are grateful that you initiated and came after us. We never would have come after you. And because you have done that, you have brought us to know your son, and we have trusted in him because of the work that your spirit did in us. And you've redeemed us and saved us from our sin because we have trusted in him alone. And that's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what you have brought about in our hearts. You opened our blind eyes. And you gave us the faith to trust in Christ alone. But it just doesn't stop there, Lord. You then have something for us to do, and once we are born into your kingdom, then begins the process of growth. And that process of growth is not an easy process. It is a hard process. It is a difficult road. It is one that requires endurance. It's one that requires courage. And, and sometimes, Lord, we get tired and we get worn out and we get discouraged. Uh, inevitably, there are guys in this room today, as they made their way in here, they're fighting off discouragement because as we follow you, we also have an enemy who hates you and therefore hates us. And one of the primary ways that he works in our lives is to discourage us. He tries to rob us of our hope. He tries to overwhelm us with circumstances that just seem impossible to ever navigate through. He gets us to wonder about your timing and why you haven't already done what we had hoped that you would do. And then subtly we begin to question you and we begin to question your wisdom, which is, which is really so foolish because we have such a small perspective and such a limited perspective. You are our Father. You know what is best. You have our best in mind in the good things and in the bad things. And you use both to equip us and to mature us and to make us into your men. So I pray for those of us today who need encouragement that you would infuse us with courage. Give us a higher perspective. Help us to get our eyes off this minute situation that we are facing and help us to put our eyes and the eyes of our mind upon you and to ruminate upon your greatness and to ruminate on your power and your wisdom If you only had wisdom, you wouldn't be the God that we need, but your wisdom is also accompanied by power, so you have the ability to always put in place the wisdom that comes from you. So nothing can stop your plan for us. Nothing can stop your favor. Nothing can stop your blessing. Those who are over us and have authority over us, you control them like puppets. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. You turn it whatever way you wish. Now, these are the things we need to remember. These are the things we need to focus upon. And this evening, as we look once again at this letter, this last letter that Paul penned by your spirit, give each of us what we need, each of us. We've got different challenges. We've got different problems. We've got different things that are gnawing at us. And we need help. Some of us need for you to defend us. 
Some of us need some direct guidance in the next 24 hours because we've got a major decision to make. Give each man here tonight exactly what he needs. We cannot live without you. We cannot function without you. We have tried that and we have failed miserably. We ask for your help. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Appreciate it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy, if you would. We're going slowly. We're going to pick up a little speed tonight. Not a lot of speed. But when we get into 2 and 3 and 4, we'll pick up the pace. Otherwise, we'll be here till. Um, May of 2011. So we're going to definitely pick up the pace. I don't often read the New York Times, but I read an article earlier today from the New York Times, dated April 12, 2009. The author is Jeffrey Gettleman, and he writes these words. <clears throat> An American skipper in the hands of seafaring rogues, some of the world's busiest shipping lanes under attack, Tough men from a messy patch of, a, of Africa eluding and harassing the world's greatest powers. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's not last week's drama on the high seas we're talking about, when Somali pirates attacked an American freighter in the Indian Ocean and took its captain hostage and then made off of him in a lifeboat. Rather, we're talking about the Barbary Wars about 200 years ago when pirates from the Barbary Coast, which is today's Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria and Libya, hijacked European ships with impunity and ransomed back the crews. You know, it was Hegel who said, history teaches us that men never learn from history. You remember, uh, some of you guys are Marines. Good, good to have you here. Uh, by the way, Homeland Security is watching you carefully. I want you to know that. Uh, um, I wasn't in the Marines. I screwed up my knees my senior high school and, and didn't serve in the military, and I couldn't play college ball, but not that I was good enough to play, but in my mind, I was tremendous. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I remember as a kid in grammar school learning this song from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. What the heck is that all about? It's about the Barbary Wars. Uh, Frank Lambert, who's a professor at Purdue, is an expert on the Barbary, Barbary pirates. And here's a quote from him. He said, when I first read about the Somali pirates, I almost did a double take and turned to my wife at the breakfast table and said, this is deja vu. History is repeating itself. In Harper's Magazine, there was an interesting article that was done along the same vein called Pirates in the CIA, what would Thomas Jefferson have done? Can you guys believe we're actually dealing with pirates? I mean, it really is unbelievable. I mean, that was one of the things that went away. Pirates, it's, it's of another generation. We don't deal with pirates. I mean, the only pirates we know are pirates of the Caribbean. That's the only pirates that we're familiar with. They've been gone forever. Captain Hook, that's the only stuff we know about. Disney talked about pirates. Now they're on the front page. Uh, Ken Silverstein and Harper's Pirates in the CIA, what would Thomas Jefferson have done? And he says, for months, a former senior CIA officer has been telling me that pirate activity off Somalia was a problem that needed to be aggressively dealt with. By chance, I had a meeting with him yesterday as the Maersk, Alabama hijacking was unfolding. Here's what he had to say. I'll read you a couple of comments. CIA uh, senior officer, retired. The American response to date has been incredibly naive and woefully ineffective. Now, predictively, you have an American taken hostage. Of course, that's all been taken care of. All of which should have been prevented. You've got a failed state in Somalia and pirates operating in an area of ocean that is larger than the state of Texas. But we've been trying to deal with this from the ocean side. We can't afford to patrol that big a piece of the ocean. It is too expensive to leave a naval task force out there. 
you need to deal with this problem from the beach side, in concert with the ocean side. But we don't have an embassy in Somalia and limited ineffective intelligence operations. We need to work in Somalia and in Lebanon, where a lot of the ransom money has changed hands. But our operations in Lebanon are a joke, and we have no presence at all in Somalia. Attempting to intervene this exclusively from the water side is folly. The U.S. Navy is already stretched so thin with enormous other tasks and amassing the required resources to search for a small band of thieves would be a waste of valuable resources. The U.S. Navy should not have to shoulder this alone. He goes on and says this. The pirates, I'm going to get into the word of God here in a minute, but uh, this is fair and balanced reporting. I just want you to hear this. The pirates have a base of operations and they have infrastructure. They're not going out 400 plus nautical miles from shore in, uh, I won't use the word he uses, in, in lousy boats. They have fuel supplies, docks, mechanics, and support infrastructure on the beach. It's all findable and disruptable. We need a contingent of agency personnel in Ethiopia and Somalia to go after this infrastructure, go after leadership and control elements in Somalia and aggressive human intelligence efforts in Lebanon to follow and choke off the money. This is a challenge to confront, but it has to be dealt with. And then he says this in regard to the events that just occurred. The Navy sent the USS Bainbridge to the pirate incident. Now, interestingly enough, the USS Bainbridge was named after a commander in the United States Navy. Commander Bainbridge was the commander of the task force that President Jefferson sent to fight the Barbary pirates in Tripoli. Is that not fascinating? Is that not ironic? And he goes on and talks about Bainbridge and the action that Bainbridge led that led to the destructions of the pirates was not one that just came from the ocean, but one that came from the land, and it was a dual front attack. But the very ship that we sent was named after the last commander to have success against Muslim pirates. History repeats itself. Now, what's the deal with pirates? Well, they're taking hostages, they're taking ships. What's this article all about? Why do we have the Navy in there? Why is the CIA? Somebody has to guard the ships. Somebody has to guard the crew. Someone has to guard the cargo, and that's not being done. Therefore, these guys, their lives are at risk, and ransoms are being paid. It's out of control. Somebody needs to step in and guard our ships, so that's their protection. That is precisely what Paul is talking about in this next section of 2 Timothy. As Paul is getting ready to die, as he is facing imminent death from Nero... Uh, in 2 Timothy, it's very, very clear. He says that he has fought the good fight. He later says in this book that his departure is imminent. He knows it's coming. He's passing off the baton to his young protege, Timothy. And as he is doing that, there is great fervor uh, that comes through his, his heart and his life and through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As he's giving instructions to young Timothy, he he hits something really, really hard as we come to the conclusion of, of 2 Timothy chapter 1. And, and what he's hitting hard is the whole issue of, of guarding, G-U-A-R-D-I-N-G. He wants Timothy to guard something um, that is precious and that is valuable and that he cannot allow to be taken. And, and make no mistake, we have an enemy who wants to take this valuable asset. If you're in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12, Paul says these things. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. He, he, what he's talking about, he, he's in prison. He, he is referring to the fact that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Because he's an apostle and a preacher and a teacher, he's going to suffer because the gospel is not popular. The gospel... Uh, it's been safe to hold to the gospel in America since our founding. This has not been a place of persecution for those who hold to the gospel. However, our nation is becoming a place of persecution. Is it not? 
for those who believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, if you believe the word of God, you are a problem in this country. They're concerned about you and your influence, and they're watching in some cases. Uh, the, the, the free ride is over. Difficult times are ahead, and we can all sense that, and we can see it coming. And it's been happening for quite a while. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that the suffering will increase. If you think it's going to decrease, uh, you need to get a different medication because you're not dealing with reality. There has been a cultural shift in this nation. I think Chuck said it a couple of weeks ago that the statements of the founding fathers, uh, those are gone. It's over. We're moving on. That's been forgotten. That's ancient history. Whole new direction now. So what does that mean for us? It means we're facing different circumstances than our fathers and grandfathers faced in regard to their faith in Jesus Christ. We just need to know what reality is. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Now watch this. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able, watch this, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Here's the first time he uses the term guard. Then he says in verse 13, uh, speaking to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, guard, there it is again, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Dr. Hendricks, when he was teaching this morning, was talking about the fact that one of the... Um, principles of Bible study is observation. He told a great story about um, being on a 747. How many people did he say were on the plane? I think he said there were eight passengers on this 747 and 20 flight attendants. Long flight. He's got his Bible open, doing some Bible study, doing some preparation. One of the flight attendants comes by and says to him, what are you reading? And he, says, he said, I'm reading a book that my father wrote. Uh, let's pass out the coffee, guys. That was a good line, I thought. Uh, this is a book that his father wrote. And he began to talk with her, and, she began to, and it turns out she was a fairly new Christian, just a year or two. And she began to ask him some questions, and... and uh, she said, well, you're studying. He says, yeah, I'm just studying the passage. She said, well, how do you study the Bible? And he said, would you like to learn? She said, well, sure. He said, do you have time? And she said, I've been assigned to you. <laughs> That's what she said. So she sat down, and he showed her the verses that he was reading. And then he said, now, and, and here was his point. One of the key principles in Bible study is observation. You read the text. You know, Yogi Berra once said, you can see a lot by looking. <laughs> and that's true. You can see a lot by looking. So this flight attendant sits down. He shows her this verse, and he says, hey, just, just read that. So she read it. He says to her, he says, what do you see there? What stands out to you there? And she said, well, I see this. And then I see this. And she came up with eight things. He said, that's Bible study. That's great. You're observing the text. What does the text say? In this passage, the emphasis, Paul uses the word guard twice. But the entire section is about guarding. In fact, even as you go down to chapter 2 and you start reading down through every verse, as I was reading this work, I just made marks in my Bible with pencil, uh, all the way down to verse uh, 10. Without using the word, he's talking about the concept of guarding. Notice, if you would, verse 12. Because the first thing that Paul is going to talk about is the fact that, and if you're taking notes, I, I want to give you several principles on guarding. The 
First one is this. God is guarding something valuable. Well, what is that? He says, I suffer these things. I'm not ashamed. Now watch this. Watch this. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What has, and, and when you read the different commentators and you read the different scholars on this, there's a debate. What ta- Paul is talking about, what he has entrusted to the Lord, uh, is it the gospel or is it his whole life and his whole future? And you can read, you know, going back and forth. I'll tell you what I think. I think it's both. I think he entrusted everything to God. The gospel was entrusted to him. You remember Paul's background? He was the great, um, he was the great enemy of the Christian church. He held the coats of uh, the men who slayed Stephen. And then he was breathing threats. We've been through this. You know the guy's background. His name used to be Saul. He hated Christianity. He would take men from their homes, jail them. I mean, he, this guy did unbelievable damage, and then the Lord Jesus appears to him. It's one of the great stories in all of history. And the great persecutor of the church became the great preacher of the church. His whole life was turned around. And he was entrusted with the gospel. And from then on, his life was changed. So when he says, and, and I think it's interesting to observe how he puts this. He says, he says, I know whom I have believed. He doesn't say, I know what I have believed. He says, I know whom. He knew the living Christ. He met Christ on the road to Damascus. This was just not a, uh, uh, a, a nice concept. It wasn't a metaphysical concept. When you have an encounter with the risen Christ, your life is changed. It's called life change. You're never the same again when Christ comes into your life, when he calls you, when he ransoms you. Uh, when he elects you, and by his spirit he draws you to himself, your life is never the same again. Now, we have a lot of people in Texas that go to church because a lot of people in Texas go to church because it's the cultural thing to do. Not so much in California is that the thing to do. Not so much in New Hampshire is that the thing to do. In Texas, it's the thing to do. Not everyone who is a regular church attender has that relationship with Christ. They know about him, but the question is, do you know him? He says, I know whom I have believed, and watch this. I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul's entrusted his whole life to him. See, I think we get a, we get a glimpse of what Paul's talking about here. Remember, this guy, hey, th- this, guy is, uh, this guy is not at some resort in Maui, you know, just making some notes here. This guy is in, in, in prison, in Rome, in a dungeon. He, he, he is not in good circumstances. Persecution has broken out. Um, as we're going to see in a minute, he's had some real setbacks and some real disappointments. But you don't get a sense of despair from him. Not at all. You ever find yourself fighting off uh, a despair? Yeah, you do, don't you? Because you see where things are going. And see, we're careful how we say all this stuff. But you can see it, can't you? We, we know um, we've crossed the line, in, in my opinion. And I have to tell you, I find myself having to... Um, I don't know. This, this, is, this has been going on with me for a while. I find myself having to fight off uh, depression and despair because if I have any hope in anything other than in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there's not a lot of basis for that hope because we're going the wrong direction. And so that's why some of us have been despairing. I went down Friday night with Mary to hear Chuck Colson at Park City's Presbyterian. And I, I, he did a great job. And he was all excited. He, he, uh, he talked about uh, four, uh, uh, four uh, he talked about the perfect storm that we're in right now. And I can't remember all four, but one of them was the economic um, meltdown. 
the other one, uh, I can't remember all four, but he put the four together, and by the time he was done, you're just going, oh, gosh. (laughs) And then he said, he said, but i got to tell you something. He said, I've never been so excited in my life. And he was. I mean, you could just sense it. 77 years old, and he's pumped. He said, this is great, because, you know, there have been other times in history when things look just like this. And when things get bad, you know what happens? God comes through. And God starts doing something in a way you never could have imagined. And he was right. He made a statement. He made a statement, and he quoted somebody, and I, I didn't write it down. I, I, I didn't get it. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was some Dutch theologian. But the statement was this. Despair is the denial of the sovereignty of God. That's good. That's good. When you're despairing, when I'm despairing, in actuality, we're denying that God is sovereign and in absolute control over all events. If God is steering the ship, no matter which way the ship is going, and we belong to him, and he's our father, we do not need to despair, do we? No, we don't. But we've got to spend time reading the truth. You just can't read newspapers. You just can't go online and read blogs. You've got to read the Word of God, or you're going to go over into despair. I think when Paul is talking about what he is entrusted and what God is guarding, he's talking about the gospel, which was his whole life. And he's talking about his whole life, his entire existence. If you look at the uh, last chapter, if you look in 2 Timothy 4, verse um, 18, he's about to be beheaded. He says this, and once again, these are final words to Timothy. Last, Last stuff Paul ever put together under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, he he said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Why? Because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to guard that which I've committed. I've given him my whole life. Now, you know what's interesting? He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. How, How did Paul die? Old age in a rest home? Assisted living? No. He had an assisted Beheading is what he had. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Hey, you know something? They just, they just took him out. Probably had very little notice. Let's go. Took him out there. Wacko. So that was an evil deed. Yeah, it was. But the moment his head went off, he was in the presence of Christ. He was rescued. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Now, if you know Christ, that's true of you. It doesn't mean that evil never happens in your life, but it means that God will use the evil. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring about this present result. Being a Christian doesn't mean that evil never comes into your life. In fact, if you're serious about Christ, you're going to encounter evil. The enemy is going to come after you. He's going to try and bring you down. He's going to try and discourage you. He's going to try and, and uh, keep you from the task which God has given you. So it doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. But what it means is, is, that, is that our Father is overseeing even the difficulties and the hardship and the evil which comes into our lives. Satan could not go further with Job than God allowed him to go. Is that not right? He had to ask permission, first of all. Satan just couldn't do whatever he wanted to do. He had to ask permission, and God set boundaries, and Satan had to stay within the boundaries. That's true of you, and it's true of me. So God is orchestrating all the events of your life and my life, good and bad, and he's using them all to mature us and to make us into his men and to develop muscle and to give us endurance so we can fight the battle that has to be fought. And it's a tough battle, and it's heating up. But you know what? We've entrusted it to him, and he's guarding it. He's guarding your future. He's guarding your eternal destiny. He's guarding your children. 
You ever, you ever despair a little bit about your kids, about your grandkids, what they're going to face? Sure you do. God loves them more than you do. God's got a plan. God's got a sovereign plan. I, I find it interesting. We all appreciate Daniel so much. We love Daniel. Uh, you, you open Daniel 1. You know what happened to Daniel? He was ripped out of his nation. The southern kingdom. They had disobeyed God for hundreds and hundreds of years. Finally, God said, that's it. And they're taken into a foreign nation. Foreign land, foreign language, foreign food, foreign culture, foreign gods. I mean, they were ripped out of what they knew. And here's this young man that God used to be a beacon of light. Was his uh, an easy life? No. What happened to his parents? They lost their home. It was a horrible thing. But God brought good. There's a place called heaven, and this isn't it. Do you know that? So if you think it's your best life now, you're wrong. You didn't get that. Your best life is heaven. Now, in the interim, God will use all things and will oversee all things to direct you and guide you and mature you. But just as with your kids and with your grandkids, when you, you know, you, you, when you have kids, you know your kids are going to go through hard times. They're going to go through, you know, they might get a disease or they might get bullied or they might have this or this. You still bring them into the world because they develop and mature as they go through the good stuff and the bad stuff. So whatever we face, God is guarding our lives and our existence, and it's under his protection and under his sovereignty. Have you ever seen the providence of God work in your life? Have you ever seen men work against you and then God works for you? It's the greatest thing in the world. It's the greatest thing in the world to know that where you work and all the way up the chain of command, all those men who, women who are in authority over you, God owns them and God runs them. Paul is under the authority of Nero. Who ran Nero? This insane sexual pervert and killer. Who ran him? God ran him. Because God runs everybody in all things. Paul had entrusted his life, and he believed that God would guard it and successfully get him home, and God will. Now, in the next verse, back in 2 Timothy 1, so, so in other words, guys, when, when, when we start getting despairing and we start getting depressed, you know what we got to do? we got to kick ourselves, and we've got to start thinking. We've got to start thinking Bible. We've got to start thinking truth. Wait a minute, what's the real perspective here? Because what we're dealing with is not the visible stuff. We're dealing with the invisible stuff. There is a Holy Spirit. There is a sovereign God who is at work in the affairs of your life. Some of the early founding fathers, you know, many of them were Christians. Some of them were deist. And the great heresy of deism is that God created the world and wound it up like a clock and then just left it alone. God does not leave the world alone the devil is not in the details of the world god is in the details of the world is he not he's in the details of your life that helps me keep going does it you okay now let's go back to first timothy or second timothy chapter one now now check out if you would Check out the next verse. Because in, in 12, we have what God guards. In 13, now he is saying to Timothy, he is, Timothy, there's something you must guard. You say, I don't see the word guard in verse 13. Well, he used the New American Standard and says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Timothy was given a charge from Paul when he says, retain the standard of sound words. Do you know what he's talking about? He's saying, guard the standard of sound words. That's what he's saying when he says retain. He's saying, guard it. Why would he have to guard the standard of sound words? And by the way, what does that mean? We'll flip over to 1 Timothy 6. 
If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, there it is. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understand nothing. When Paul is talking about the sound words, he's speaking of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the words which he writes. Because Paul was an apostle of Christ. Was it 13 letters that Paul wrote? I think so. You know how the words of Christ, some of you guys have Bibles and uh, in the Gospels, the words of Jesus are in red. You have a Bible like that? If, if you do, if the publisher were consistent, your entire Bible would be in red letters. Because your entire Bible are the words of Jesus. You can always tell when you're in the wrong church when somebody says, oh, I don't buy that because Paul said that. If you're in a church like that, find another church. Because when Paul says it, he's saying what Jesus says. Jesus spoke through Paul. Jesus speaks through Genesis, through Revelation. It's the word of Jesus. So when Paul says it as an apostle, it's the word of Christ. Those are the sound words. So Timothy, hey, Timothy. Yeah, I, I'm entrusting this to God, the God's gardeners. But look it, I'm passing off the baton to you. You've got to guard the sound words. What are the sound words? Well, in 1 Timothy 6, the sound words are what Paul teaches, what the apostle teaches, what Christ teaches. But there are some who have different doctrines. You can't do that. You've got to guard against wrong teaching. You've got to, so, you know what this means, guys? It means whenever you go to a Bible study, whenever you go to a church, whenever you hear a preacher, whenever you hear, you guy, whenever you hear some guy on TV, it means that you take what he says and you match it to your Bible. And if it fits your Bible, you accept it. If it doesn't fit your Bible, you reject it. Because it's not sound. This is... The only testament of Jesus Christ. For a while, there were these commercials that were being run that were very slick, very professionally done. The Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. There is no other testament of Jesus Christ. Flip over to Galatians. Go to your left a little bit. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says, I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. They're not guarding sound words. Now watch this. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. You always got to be careful when someone says, when someone says they've had a vision and they got a new book. If they've had a vision and a new book, you need to go the other direction. You, you don't need um, Mary Baker Eddy. You, you don't need her. You don't need her explanation of the key to the scriptures. It's not a key, it's a key to confusion. You just need the Word of God. You don't need the Book of Mormon. You don't need any other book except this book. You've got to guard the sound words. Now, back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. He's going to use the term guard again. And this time he says this. He says guard. Who's he speaking to? He's talking to Timothy. He says, Timothy... Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to us. Now, what's this all about? Once again, he's talking about the gospel. What's the treasure? It's the gospel. Last week, we talked all about the gospel. The gospel is the treasure. And at all costs, you've got to guard, you've got to guard through the Spirit of God the treasure that's been entrusted to you. So here he is, he keeps punching this guard. First of all, God's going to guard what I've entrusted to him. So my future is in his hands. My future employment. See, I think I said this last week or the week before. See, when you really get a grip on this, 
when you get when when you get a grip on what Paul is saying, I know back in twelve, I know whom I have believed, and I'm able to. I'm convinced he's able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. Paul's talking about his whole life, and I did say this a few weeks ago, but I want to say it again. What we're hearing constantly is a false gospel. We're hearing that government should be your God. We're, we're hearing that government is your Savior. Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is the only Messiah. The rest of them are false. And they come in with smooth words. And you got to watch them like hawks. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the provider. Jesus is your sovereign keeper. Jesus is your employer. Jesus is your health care provider. Jesus is your social security. And I'm saying that again because we need to be reminded. Because every time we look around, we're all panicking. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on here. Who is running this show? God Almighty. Okay. So you're father? Yes, he is. Well, then you're okay, man. You're okay. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And my God shall meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. He doesn't say my administration shall meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. <laughs> he doesn't say that, does he? He says, my God. That's what he says. See, you don't need a community organizer. You need Christ. Right? You don't need some guy from some Ivy League school. I don't care what side of the aisle he's on. You need Christ. That's what you need. You need what the pilgrims had. You need what John Witherspoon had and John Winthrop and all those guys who loved Christ. They loved him. You, you need what the guys who started Harvard needed. They love Christ. The reason you got to guard it, you know why you got to guard this stuff? Because when you stand for it, the enemy is immediately going to come after you. It's interesting, historically, most Christian churches and most Christian institutions, right about the 50-year mark, um, face apostasy or heresy. It's interesting how many Christian schools have been started that at 50 years, they start getting away from the Word of God. They're not guarding. Some professors have come in, and they say, yes, I, I'll sign the doctrinal statement, but because they don't have character, they really don't believe what they signed, and then underneath, the, they get, uh, what do you call that stuff, uh, academic uh, tenure. tenure. Under tenure, once they get tenure, then they start teaching whatever they want, and you can't get them. It's amazing to me how many schools, you read their history, 50 years, they start departing from sound word. Somebody's not guarding the truth. That's what happened at Harvard. Harvard was started to raise up ministers of the gospel. Do you know that? Within 50 years, Harvard was overrun by Unitarians. We have Unitarians around today. Every once in a while I'll have someone say to me, Steve, what do Unitarians believe? Nothing. Nothing that's in the Word of God. If it's in the Word of God, they don't believe it. They're false teachers. In 50 years, Harvard's overrun. So then a group of godly guys get together and say, doggone it, we're going to start a school to raise up men of God that will stay true to the Word of God. So you know what they need in that school? Yale. And to this day, they're standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They stand against it. Within 50 years... Unitarianism. So then another group of guys say, doggone it, we can't, oh, this is terrible, look at those two. So we're going to start a school, you know, same drill. You know what they call that school? Princeton. You know you have a professor of ethics at Princeton named Peter Singer. Ethics. You know what Singer says in regard to abortion? He says, you should be able to take a child's life until 18 months after they're out of the womb. If you could take it the day before they're out of the womb, why couldn't you take it two weeks after? Why not 18 months? 
Gives you 18, gives you a year and a half to figure out if you want this child. That's how far Princeton's gone. And you'll see him on TV, and they quote him all the time. It's Peter Singer, you know, professor of ethics. Somebody didn't guard. Somebody didn't guard. And this just doesn't happen to institutions, and it doesn't just happen to churches. It happens to individuals. Now in verse, you guys still with me? Now in verse 15, note Note that in verse 15 are the ones who didn't guard. Who didn't guard. Verse 15, Paul says, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Isn't that interesting? That's quite a statement, isn't it? Quite a statement. Here's Paul in prison, getting ready to die. You know, he labored in Asia. Um, John Stott, in his little commentary called Guard the Gospel, um, writes these words concerning verse 15. It's it's an amazing statement. Uh, Let's read it again, because I really want you to get this. Paul says, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. All who are in Asia, in other words, they didn't guard the gospel and they have departed from the faith. Basically, it looks like his time there was a total failure. So John Stott says this. In any case, Paul saw the turning away of the Asian churches. And by the way, who makes up a church? Individuals. Individuals make up a church. In any case, Paul saw the turning away of the Asian churches as more than a personal desertion. It was a disavowal of his apostolic authority. It must have seemed particularly tragic because a few years previously, during Paul's two and a half years residence in Ephesus, that Luke says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord and many believed. That's Acts 19.10. So in Acts 19.10, he's preaching to all these people in Asia and many of them believed. What a great triumph. What a great victory. But now, years later, what does he say? All those in Asia who believe what has happened, they've turned away from me. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Um, this, this is why you don't keep score on how, how effective you're being. Um, oh, we had this many come forward. Great. How many stuck 10 years later? Oh, this many were baptized. Great. How many stuck 30 years later? That's the issue. You see, the issue is finishing. The issue is enduring. The issue is finishing strong. These were people that, that believed the word, that believed the truth, but they didn't guard it. They got away. They... they they got, they got another foundation. They were deceived. They were conned. They began to rationalize. They began... What, what a sadness. What, what, what a sad situation. Then he mentions this guy. He mentions one guy. Um, now let me read to you what he says. Out of all these people that departed, he mentions one guy who guarded the faith and who lived it. This guy is uh, in verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. That's a hard one to say. Onesiphorus. Say that 20 times. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For, watch this. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So out of all the people that departed, here's one guy that's stuck. By the way, his name, Onesiphorus. I still can't say that name. I'm going to get it right. Onesiphorus, that's how you say it. This is a, why couldn't they call him Joe? <laughs> Onesiphorus. 
You know what this guy's name literally means? It means a bringer of profit. It was worth him being named that because that's what he did to Paul. Paul looked over those years he spent in Asia, and they all, they all punted. They didn't guard. They all left. The heat got on them, and they all, they all... Can I tell you what will be interesting in this country? As the persecution heats up, you're going to find out who the true believers are. Is that not right? You see, when persecution comes, the church gets, uh, the church gets purified. It gets purified. Because the guys that are just kind of screwing around, they start doing persecution, they're out of there. They're not hanging around for that. They didn't sign up for that. You know, they'll go to the barbecue, but they're not going. If they're going to barbecue you, they're not going to go. <laughs> the church gets purified. And I'll tell you something else that happens when the church gets pur- persecuted. When the church gets persecuted, the church gets purified. And the other thing that happens when the church get, gets uh, purified, the church gets powerful. Powerful. Every time I put on a shirt and I see the label and it says made in China, you know what I do? I'm dead serious. I say, Lord, if some Christian in some slave situation is the one who put this shirt together, I pray for that person. See, because that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. The, 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 the slavery that's going on in China is unbelievable. And, and they just don't slave them and beat them. They use them to run the economic engine. Oh, and by the way, the church in China is growing like wildfire. You know that? Do you know else where the church is growing? Is in the Muslim world. The Muslim world, people are coming to Christ in droves. I've, I've read some articles where, where some believe throughout the Middle East that, that a thousand a day are coming to Jesus Christ. In Saudi Arabia. And all those countries where it's a crime to be a Christian. Why is the church growing? Why is it? Because there's persecution and because there's power and because God's at work. Uh, I understand Newsweek had an article out this past week. And of course, I always believe what Newsweek says, as I know you do. Uh, and apparently, uh, Christianity, is in, uh, Christianity is in great decline. Did you know that? Are you aware of that? I think Colson referred to that study, and he said what they didn't talk about was the liberal churches that were in the study, and liberal churches have been losing people forever. Why? Because they don't preach the gospel. Nobody's going to put up with that stuff. Why the heck go to some church on Easter Sunday that doesn't preach the resurrection of Christ? Why would you go to, if Christ didn't come out of the tomb, why the heck would you go to church? Just go over to the country club and have brunch. Why would you waste your time? Isn't it in Colossians? Yeah, look at Colossians 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, watch this, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Newsweek is wrong. The gospel is always increasing, always, always. Now, it doesn't mean that in certain cultures, true biblical Christianity doesn't go into decline. That does happen. But God always has his remnant. God always has his true believers. You see, always. And when the hard times come, when the persecution comes, they don't split, they don't run, they stand. So how do they stand under great persecution? Through the grace of God. I'm not sure I could stand. Well, you couldn't stand today because you don't need to stand under persecution. But if persecution comes, he will give you in that hour what you need to withstand the persecution. He'll give you the power. You don't need it now, so why would you have it? Right? But when the testing comes, it's there. That's what God does. That's grace. That's grace. So you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to fear it. Go ahead and go to sleep tonight. Okay? You guys still with me? 
Don't you love this positive stuff? It is positive, isn't it? Because you just look all this stuff right in the face. You look at the worst that can happen and you say, Jesus is Lord and he's in control and he's calling the shots and he's going to be glorified and he's going to take care of me and everything I've entrusted to him is going to be there. You know the worst they can do is kill you? Right? What's the worst that can happen? Well, they might kill me. Great. Hey, man, your worries are over. Right? Lou, did you do the 15-minute thing? Okay. I, I, uh, um, I got to do one more thing. Go back to 2 Timothy, if you would, and jump to chapter 2, verse 1. He's still hitting guard, guard, guard. Watch this now, 2 Timothy 2.1. And you know these chapter divisions were not in the original letter. You know that, don't you? It was just a straight letter. But at a certain point, so we could find our place in the letter, they put chapter divisions and verses in there. So in the original, there was no break when Timothy was reading this. So, chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying there? He's saying guard your strength. Guard your strength. Uh, you read these little phrases, and, and you know when you, when, you, when you read this book, is it not true that if you're reading this book, you just fly over chapter 2, verse 1? You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We always focus on, on verse 2, because verse 2 is a phenomenal verse, but you can't miss verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you something. Why is it important to be strong in the grace? Because all those in Asia who departed from the faith, weren't strong in grace. You know what happens to us, guys? The enemy is very, very subtle. He's very subtle. Um, sometimes things happen to us as Christians, and we don't understand why God allows them to happen. It's a great disappointment a great tragedy, something will be taken from you, there'll be a great loss as a believer. And you know when those things happen, do you know the enemy starts working overtime? And with the enemy, if you've had a great loss, if you've had a setback, if you've had something that just crushes you occur in your life, the enemy comes in and he begins to speak to you and he begins to try to get you to let your guard down. How can God be good and let that happen? I guarantee you, when our buddy Paul Lanier found out it was with the Lord now, when Paul first found out he had Lou Gehrig's disease, I guarantee you the enemy was working him over. How can God be good and let you have this disease? How can you trust a God like this? How, why? You're not against him, you're serving him. I mean, you, you know the enemy works overtime. And what the enemy tries to do is he gets us, he tries to get us to, to, to question God, to doubt God's goodness, to, God, to doubt God's providence, to doubt God's care, to, God, to doubt God's protection. And see, what happens is if we're not careful when these things happen, we get embittered. We get embittered. And when you get embittered, you're not strong, you're weak. And you've dropped your guard. This is what happens. In 1946, and if you, I did a book called Finishing Strong, and this is how I opened the book. You might be familiar with the story. In 1946, there were three young evangelists that were making an impact across the United States. Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and Braun Clifford. Um, in 1946, right around that time, Billy Graham came blowing out of the hills of North Carolina. He started preaching the gospel. And he started packing civic auditoriums. He was the first evangelist for Youth for Christ. He started speaking to thousands and thousands. Uh, you all know Billy Graham. You know, when he was a young man, he spoke at an average rate of 278 words a minute. Some of you guys have seen tape of Graham when he was a young man. He was a machine gun. 
I mean, he was not a diplomat. He was not a statesman. I mean, he had some, some suit and some wild tie, and his hair was flowing. I mean, that sucker was going after it. 278 words a minute. You could not not listen to him. I remember as a little boy hearing him on the radio on the hour of decision. I mean, I was, I mean I'm just, he, he had me. Couldn't even see the guy. I'm just listening to him. He just reaches down, and he just grabs you by the throat. As he got older, he got more sedate and laid back. But, I mean, he was a wild man when he was a young man. By the way, these three young evangelists are all in their mid-20s, and they're having an impact for Christ. So Graham is having this unbelievable impact for youth for Christ. People are coming to Christ like crazy. But there was also another evangelist by the name of Chuck Templeton, who was the second evangelist for youth for Christ, who was brought on staff. He's filling the same auditoriums as Graham is. I've been at the Billy Graham Center in, in Asheville. And if you ever go there, they have all these wonderful pictures of the Crusades and all the years that uh, they ministered. And there's one particular picture of uh, four men kneeling next to a, an airplane, getting ready to go off somewhere to preach the gospel. And they're kneeling on the tarmac, just under the wing, Billy Graham, Cliff Barrows, George Beverly Shea, and Chuck Templeton. I've talked to men who heard Graham and Templeton preach back in the 40s and 50s, and the guys I talked to told me they thought Templeton was the better preacher. But how come you've never heard of Chuck Templeton? This same time, this same time in the mid-1940s, there was a guy named Bron Clifford. He's filling Southern Baptist churches from Florida to Texas. He preached at chapel at Baylor. Does Baylor still have chapel? He's preaching chapel at Baylor. And the guy was so effective and so powerful as he spoke on the deity of Christ that they canceled class. And revival broke out. And students were weeping and calling out to God. And it was unbelievable. They're saying this guy's the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. Why is it that everybody in this room knows about Billy Graham, but most of you have never heard of Chuck Templeton or... Ron Clifford, although in 1946 and 47, everybody's talking about these guys. These are the three most powerful evangelists in America. Well, five years later, Chuck Templeton, great gifted preacher, led thousands of Christ. Chuck Templeton started taking classes at Princeton Theological Seminary, which used to be a great seminary, when B.B. Warfield was there and the Hodges were there and J. Gresham Machen was there. But Machen was the last of the good ones, and they threw him out. Because, you see, he believed in the virgin birth of Christ, and he believed in the Trinity, and he believed in the substitutionary atonement, and he believed in the literal resurrection, and that wasn't popular anymore, so they threw him out. Ron Clifford, they're saying the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. What happened to him? Uh, ten years later, he died in Amarillo. Found his body in a hotel room. He was a... He was an alcoholic. He was selling Chevys at the dealership in Amarillo. He had long since quit preaching. He had left his wife and two babies who had both been born with Down syndrome. He wasn't man enough to stay there and lead that family. Um, he left the faith. Some preachers in Amarillo got an offering together to ship his body home. Greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. See, that's why you've never heard of Bron Clifford. That's why you've never heard of Chuck Templeton, we've heard of Graham because what did he do? He guarded the sound words. The other two didn't. Everyone in Asia has departed. So you know, guys, we can talk about this, and we can talk about this, and we can talk about this. But the question is, in my heart and in your heart, are you guarding the sound words? See, that's how you stay strong. Timothy, stay strong. Be strong. How are you strong? You're strong in the word of God, and you're strong in who God is. That's how you stay strong. If your God is small, if your God doesn't know the future, you will not be strong. If your God does not have all wisdom and all power and persecution comes, you'll flee. But if he is that God, you'll stand and have a power you never knew you had, and you don't have to fear for you or your wife or your kids or your family. Let the tough times come. God will do his work, 
and he will guard us and he will get us to heaven on his schedule. We have nothing to fear. We have no reason to despair. We have no reason to be depressed. That's the gospel. Let's bow. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the power of your word that it was lived out in Paul's life, even as he was facing death, facing imminent, imminent beheading. We look at that and we marvel. We simply would ask you, Lord Jesus, that in our own heart of hearts, that we would guard what you have given to us. Help us to be discerning in what we hear. Help us to be discerning in what we think and meditate upon. May we put your word in our hearts. May we meditate more on your word and listen less to the news so that we can have perspective. And when we have perspective, we can have peace even when things are falling apart. In your great name we pray. Amen.